in the fall of 1978, something would hit the movie screens. Something that would change the landscape of horror forever. This low-budget horror film would go on to become the highest-grossing independent movie of its time. It would make its director famous, give its leading lady their big break, and become one of the most iconic films of all time. From its infamous theme song, to its quintessential representation of the final girl, to its knife-wielding, mask-wearing, mysterious killer, this film would quite literally change the face of the horror genre to the most unlikely of faces. This movie is, of course, John Carpenter's Halloween. The story of Halloween is a relatively simple one. It's about a boy named Michael Myers who murders his sister one Halloween night. Following on from that occurrence, he is imprisoned in an insane asylum for 15 years until he finally escapes, only to return to his fictional hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, to wreak havoc on the residents that reside there. Among these residents are three schoolgirls who unfortunately cross paths with Michael Myers on Halloween night. John Carpenter's Halloween really was just that. It was John Carpenter's film. He had complete creative control over every aspect of the movie. John Carpenter, he saw himself as a classic Hollywood director in the mould of the likes of Howard Hawks, who happened to be his favourite director. Carpenter went to film school and even then he proved what a shrewd businessman he was. He raised $30,000 to expand his student thesis film, Dark Star, into a feature-length movie. The movie didn't do much, but it did allow investors to see what he was capable of. And it got him money to shoot his next film, Assault on Precinct 13, which is an urbanised reimagining of the Howard Hawks movie Rio Bravo. Both Dark Star and Assault on Precinct 13 would prove significant for many reasons. The reasons being the cast and crew. Tommy Lee Wallace grew up with John Carpenter. They were both in a band together along with Nick Castle. Nick Castle would, was in other bands, but he'd come in and kind of jam with them and help out with music and John and Tommy would help him out with music uh, and they both helped out on Dark Star. Tommy Lee Wallace was a production designer and he also was somewhat of an editor. Nick Castle was just helping out. He um, actually did the movements uh, for this giant space tomato. It was basically an inflatable beach ball that they painted to look like a tomato for Dark Star but Nick hid behind it and did the movements. These two friends would come to play a significant role in, in the Halloween movie. We also have a fella called Erwin Yablones. Erwin Yablones ended up being the distributor for Precinct 13. He worked in many different areas of the film industry and eventually, with the help of his wife, his wife told him, you know so much about movies, why don't you make your own? He actually created his own film company. The problem was... He had no movies. 
he managed to see Assault on Precinct 13, which was actually originally called The Siege. And when he saw it, he thought it was brilliant. He couldn't believe he couldn't believe that no one else wanted the movie. So he got in touch with Carpenter and basically told him he loved the movie and he wanted to distribute it. But he wanted to do a couple of things. He wanted to change the name. So he changed the name from The Siege to Assault on Precinct 13. He designed a poster, the movie poster for it. And he also made a trailer for it. Thinking these would make a difference. It, it didn't really. The movie still didn't do much until one day Irwin got a phone call from an Englishman named Michael Myers. This guy called up and said he loved the film and he wanted to enter it into the London Film Festival. Erwin agreed and Assault on Precinct 13 actually won. So there they had that bit of reassurance that, yeah, this is a good movie and we kind of we know what we're doing. We can go on from here. So Erwin, he decided he really wanted to make another movie with John Carpenter and Carpenter agreed he wanted to make another movie. He was a really eager young filmmaker. And they started uh, thinking what they could do. Out of nowhere, Erwin came up with an idea of doing a horror movie about babysitters. Horror because they're cheap to make and they're easy to sell. And babysitters because it's so universal. Everyone knows about babysitters. The ideas of babysitters getting murdered on one night seemed like a good idea. Erwin woke up. His wife told her the idea. She thought it was brilliant. He called... John Carpenter immediately asked to meet the next day. They did. So they went and had lunch and they thought, yeah, this is going to work. This is going to be a good idea. So let's do it. Carpenter had a few demands to make this movie. He said he wanted full creative control. He wanted Deborah Hill, who was actually his girlfriend at the time. And she was the script supervisor on Assault on Precinct 13 to be the producer. And he wanted his name above the title which were pretty big demands for a new filmmaker. He also asked $10,000 as his payment for the movie. He was going to write, direct, and do the music. Erwin agreed. He basically said, if you can do this movie the way I want it done, for under $300,000, you got a deal. So they got working on it. The working title for Halloween was actually The Babysitter Murders. There's a lot of dispute whether this is true or not. Some people say it is. Some people say it isn't. And then Erwin came up with doing it on Halloween night. When it was mentioned that it was Halloween, straight away, Deborah and John Carpenter thought, yes, brilliant. We can use so much imagery of Halloween, you know, pumpkins, autumn. We can make it really atmospheric. That will really work. It'll make it really incredible. But they had one worry about naming it Halloween. They were convinced that somewhere along in film history there should there should be a film named halloween or have halloween in the title and they went and did their research and found nothing so this was to their eyes the first movie ever with halloween in its title which is just mad to think now although erwin promised three hundred thousand, he actually didn't have three hundred thousand. he had fifty thousand, but he did have a business partner named mustafa akkad who lives over in Britain, and he was basically the money man. He was 51% of the company, and Erwin was 49%. And he, he called uh, Mustafa and told him how much it would cost, and Mustafa was hesitant at first, saying, oh, when movies cost a lot of money, it uh, it's, uh, puts them off. And Erwin twisted his arm by saying, oh, if that's too much money for a year, uh, you know, we, we won't have to make the movie. And then Mustafa's pride he said no that's not not the problem so they got the 300 grand they got the okay the green light to 
with the money guaranteed by a card, the team set off about creating this movie. Now, 300000 sounds like a lot of money, but it actually isn't. And especially in terms of movies that were getting made in that time, you know, $15 million was considered probably a low budget for most studio movies back then. E.T. cost about $10 million, and that was considered low budget too. So you're talking a complete fraction of that, 300000 for Halloween. Deborah Hill, who was the script supervisor in Assault Precinct 13, and now she is the producer of Halloween, actually wrote the first draft of the movie, is credited with creating the genuine, authentic dialogue between the three teenage girls. Uh, she really gave them heart, really gave them uh, personality and character and, and made it realistic to how teenage girls of the time would, would speak. Haddonfield was her hometown, so that's where the name and the basis of the story came. So Deborah Hill did a lot of the early days heavy lifting. John Carpenter came in and after the, the first draft where Deborah had wrote it out, John Carpenter came in and he added in the layer of mythology, the, the layer of evil beneath Michael Myers. A lot of the Sam Loomis dialogue can be attributed to, to Carpenter. So they really worked as a great team. Now that they had a story, they needed to get their cast and crew together. They needed to cast the protagonist, the star, Laurie Stroud. For her, they looked at a lot of girls. And one girl who auditioned was Jamie Lee Curtis. She was unknown at the time, had a few TV roles here and there, but she was nothing, nothing big. She did have a couple of things working for her, though. Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of the actor's Tony Curtis, who's famous for Some Like a Hot, and her mother is Janet Lee, who most famously was the unfortunate guest at the Bates Motel in Psycho. That famous shower scene, that was Jamie Lee Curtis's mother. So when she came into audition, she did a great job. Uh, John Carpenter said she she got the role based on herself. And Erwin found out who she was after she was hired, thought this is incredible because he can really use the publicity of her mother being a screen queen in Psycho, and now the daughter taking up the mantle and becoming the screen queen, but he can work with this. You know, said publicity is free, advertisement costs a lot of money, so you can create that kind of publicity yourself, which he did. For the character of Linda Vanderklok, they turned to PJ Souls, who had previously appeared in Brian De Palma's Carrie, and they just loved her in that, they thought she was great. And what really sold it for them was during the audition, she was the only one who could say the word totally, which was basically her character's catchphrase, if you will. She was the only one who could say totally the exact way that John Carpenter could hear it in his head. So that's how she got the role. For the character of Annie Brackett, daughter of uh, Chief Brackett, was Nancy Keys, uh, also known as Nancy Loomis, which is a nice little coincidence again there. Nancy actually appeared in Assault and Precinct 13, and... Uh, she was actually married to Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, and there was quite a lot of that going on for the cast and crew of Halloween. A lot of people were together or they were friends or acquaintances or roommates. It was a very, uh, very close set, a very family set. Everyone, it was just a lot of people pitching in, you know, probably their first big job or, or brief break or just wanting to work. And which explains a lot because the the budget was quite low. We also have Nick Castle, 
who appeared as the shape. He was uh, the friend of John Carpenter. And basically, he they were just filming it near him. They were filming it in uh, L.A. And it was near his house. And he said, hey, John, can I just come by and hang out at the set? And he said, yeah, grand. And then when he turned up, basically, they didn't want to just have someone standing around doing nothing. So John said, here, Nick, why don't you throw on the mask, stand over there, walk over there. I need someone to do the walking and standing shots. So then... You know, yeah, okay, Grant, and he just became the shape. He became Michael Myers just by being near set. For the role of Sam Loomis, Dr. Loomis, uh, went to Donald Pleasance. They originally wanted, John Carpenter originally wanted Christopher Lee, and Christopher Lee turned it down. Later in life, Christopher Lee actually said it was the biggest mistake of his career. He, he never should have turned down the role. Donald Pleasance was famous for movies like uh, You Only Live Twice, the James Bond movie, The Great Escape. And they felt he would bring a lot of gravitas. He'd bring a lot of quality and seriousness to the movie and to the role. He did have a few run-ins with a young John Carpenter on set as well. He felt the script was overwritten. He wasn't fond of the material. And it was um, only five days work for him, but he was drinking almost every day. And for one of the very important scenes they estimate that he drank two bottles of wine before it where he had to be very coherent he had a lot of dialogue and it was a, a key moment of the scene it was actually the scene where michael escapes from the insane asylum so there was kind of difficulties on set from that point of view but a lot of people say john carpenter handled it well and obviously donna pleasant's must look back on it differently because he went on to appear in uh, numerous movies all the way up until his death in 1995. They actually had another person play the shape. They had another person play Michael Myers. Tony Moran was the face of Michael Myers when his mask gets lifted for that split second and you see a face. He got the role because they wanted an angelic face to match the child from the start. And... They didn't think Nick had the right look. Nick looked older than the character should be as well. So so they got in Tony Moran for that. And it's quite funny because in, in total, five different people actually played Michael Myers, including Deborah Hill. She played the shape for a far-off wide shot of the house. Tommy Lee Wallace, the production designer, anytime something needed to be broken, Tommy Lee Wallace was playing him. In the most famous, one of the most famous scenes in the movie, is the wardrobe scene and Tommy Lee Wallace is actually the shape there because he knew exactly where to hit so the wardrobe would break properly on the first take not on the fourth take so for anything where things needed to be broken Tommy Lee Wallace did it because he could get it right by the time they started filming the team realized that their small budget would provide many difficult obstacles that they would have to overcome they'd have to be very creative very shrewd and very smart about how they can achieve the same qualities without having a massive budget behind them one of the small problems that they had was actually locating pumpkins they were shooting this movie in hollywood in the middle of the summer basically there was no access to any pumpkins they had three pumpkins they were able to locate and actually use and then for for more they had to 
used this. It was a, a type of, I think it was a Brazilian gourd that they just spray painted orange to make look like a pumpkin. But that's uh, one example of, of a struggle that they did have. Another struggle that they had was leaves. So they actually had a couple of big black bin bags full of leaves that were spray painted orange and all that, to, you know, so it would look like fall, look like autumn. And they had a fan behind the camera and they would basically just empty these bags of leaves and the fans would blow it around to make it look like it was Halloween. As soon as they had the shot and yell cut, the whole cast and crew would be going around picking up leaves to put them back into plastic bags for the next day of shooting. You know, you'd have Jamie Lee Curtis, you'd have Deborah Hill, you'd have you'd have the whole gang going around picking up these leaves and putting them into black bags, raking them up so they'd have them for the next shot, which I think is just so so beautiful in a way one of the big expenditures their their biggest expenditure that john carpenter insisted upon having for this movie was a new panaglide camera system from panavision basically what panaglide was it was like a steady cam so before you used to have to use dollies a dolly is like this little cart that you put on a track you put the camera on it and it makes the shot real smooth and it, it really shows like movement and Carpenter didn't want to use a dolly because they take a lot of time. You have to put down the track, you have to set it up, you have to, you know, man, it, it, it takes a lot of time to do dolly shots. And this movie was so low budget and so congested the filming schedule. They only had four weeks to shoot it. So they just couldn't keep putting down dolly tracks everywhere. So they invested $70,000 out of $300,000 to get this Panaglide system, which allowed the camera operator to walk with the camera, but it kept the camera steady. That was what the whole Panaglide thing was. And that became so effective and became such a staple of the movie because the Panaglide system basically put you in the eyes of the killer. It put you in the shoes of Michael Myers and the panaglide really represented his movement so just the camera what it was seen was basically from the killer's point of view and that was never really done up until then and you know since it's been it's been done a lot but it really was effective and made it a lot more chilling because you could see what he was seeing but the characters couldn't see one of the next things they needed to figure out and was so key to how well this movie would turn out was of course the mask of the killer michael myers tommy lee wallace was tasked as head of the art department well he was the only art department was tasked with finding the right mask for michael myers and basically the only description that the script ever had was just kind of a white featureless type face but they didn't have any kind of details and john carpenter doesn't even know why he kind of decided that it would be you know a pale white featureless face he said uh, but he feels it might have something to do with the 1960 french film eyes without a face where this woman was left horrible scarring on her face so she had this white 
medical mask on and only the only movement was with her eyes so he thought when i decided to to write that in so tommy lee wallace goes into a local costume shop and he returns with two masks one he shows a general um you know sad sack clown yeah the frowning clown mask which you know, john and deborah looked at him and went yeah you know that's all right that's kind of creepy that could that could kind of work but the next and this is why in the introduction i mentioned that the face of horror would change to the most unlikely of faces because the next mask he showed was a william shatner mask from star trek so there we go william shatner changed the face of horror forever which is just absolutely brilliant and it just shows what you can do when your back's against the wall and you know with a little bit of creativity a little bit of genius you're able to come up with something that is now so iconic absolutely brilliant from tommy lee wallace now that they had the appropriate mask for this deranged killer michael myers the pure evil michael myers everything was just falling into place during the shoot everything was going smoothly even though donald pleasance you know kind of got into it a little bit at the start with john carpenter he challenged him John Carpenter has said, like, you know, this is what Donald did. He challenged the directors to make sure that they know their stuff, to make sure that, you know, they're on point. So Donald was a huge team player, despite, you know, the earlier drinking and everything that like that. He really got into the Halloween spirit of things and everyone was just lending a hand, helping out and offering whenever they could. Yeah, so it was just it was just really good, and the, John Carpenter has said it was by far the best experience he ever had shooting a movie, and still to this day he he says it was the best experience he ever had. Everyone just really, really gave it their all. The movie was working really well, and it was down to pure ingenuity on the side of these filmmakers and the vision of the director. There's one particular scene where Laurie goes to the neighbor's house where her friend was babysitting. She discovers a whole host of dead bodies and, uh, you know, one in particular displayed in a very ritualistic manner. And terrified, she leaves and she's standing on the hallway upstairs back against a, a wall. In the background is pure darkness. And this was this is how... John decided to shoot so much of Halloween. He wanted to use the empty space on the screen to illustrate that Michael could possibly be there. You don't know what's there. And of course, in that scene, Michael is in the background. And they had this thing where John Carpenter wanted it to feel like your eyes adjusting to the dark. And he was kind of saying, how can we get it that the eyes would adjust to the dark for the audience? So what they did was they had a, a light with a dimmer switch and the actor playing Michael, Nick Castle, would hold it in front of him and he'd just gradually make it lighter and lighter and lighter until you could barely see his face. And then, of course, he strikes at Laurie, knocking her down the stairs and then the chase ensues. But that was a, another piece of just really intelligent filmmaking on such a low budget. It was really incredible, really effective. By far the most difficult shot of the entire movie was actually the opening scene of the movie. 
the opening scene would take a whole night to shoot and there was many reasons for that so the opening scene is very very famous very iconic it's it's done in a one shot so one movement um is what people believe it to be it basically it starts from outside the house and it's this is where the panaglide came in so brilliantly so it starts outside the house and the camera walks up and around the house peers in one window and then opens the back door and enters and at this point we know now okay this is we're in someone's head we're in someone's eyes the person walks in to the kitchen grabs a knife walks up the stairs into this young woman's bedroom and starts to murder the woman in there and this person is of course michael myers but to get that what would seem like a simple shot really wasn't to get that shot it took all night and it took a lot of work for many reasons first of all this was the last scene that they actually shot so the end of the movie the house is all dilapidated and everything so that's what the house really looked like so they had to renovate the house slightly to make it look like it was a house that was been lived in so they had to paint it and and put posters and everything like that but any room where they weren't trailing the camera through was completely still dilapidated they also would have to have the crew moving and rearranging furniture light in rooms unlight in other rooms as the camera was coming through because they just didn't have enough resources to get it all done and they had to get out of the camera's way so they had people you know hanging out windows and you know climbing climbing up on furniture and moving furniture and everything just to stay out of the shot of the camera which is absolutely priceless and then another major issue that they had was the film at the time could only shoot for a burst of about three and a half four minutes i think it was and this scene takes longer than that they, they could never get it in under that time so that would mean that the film would stop so then they had to realize they needed to be able to cut it but john was insistent on it being all in one shot so then they needed a place where they could cut the film so then what you see is the person coming in to the house they grab a knife it's actually deborah hill's hand and um, because of the strict rules on using kids for filming and how much time you're allowed to have them and how much it costs to have them it was so expensive that it was actually deborah hill you see her hand grabbing the knife then you see her hand grabbing a halloween mask and the mask goes onto the camera and as that's going on when it's first dark that was a cut and then they started the next bit of film so i was fine it goes up into the sister's bedroom and again it was deborah uh, stabbing at the sister she never even touched her when she was stabbing there the camera looks away for a split second and looks back that was another cut that was another change of film so they were able to get the shot and then of course the person leaves the house after murdering the sister they're standing on the pathway outside their house and this is when we're introduced first to that entranced young six-year-old michael myers but that last shot took so much work so much effort that they they never believed they could actually get it done some of the crew even said if it was still nighttime we'd probably still be shooting that scene because it just it seemed to never end dean cundy the cinematographer you know he was carrying around that rig that panaglide rig the entire time which is very heavy so they even had to swap over cameramen and everything like that just to give a break because he was absolutely exhausted doing it so absolutely incredible how 
how much effort went into that movie but that opening of that movie just sets up the entire film and it's so iconic it's so brilliantly done that straight away when you see that you are in that movie with the final scene in the movie shot which was actually the first scene of the movie the movie was almost complete all that was left was the soundtrack the music for the film and of course i mentioned earlier on that john carpenter was to do the music for the movie he only had three days to complete the score for the film and the theme song that he came up with you know it was a relatively simple uh simple theme but god it's fantastic he actually came up with it his his father bought him a set a pair of bongos when he was a kid and taught him five four time on it and he said that's all that the halloween song is it's five four time and he just you know instead of doing it on the bongos he did it on the keyboard then he added in some synthesized strings and there you go you have the halloween team and that song is so iconic jamie lee curtis said thanks to that theme song thanks to the halloween movie you know she never needs to dress up for halloween again all she has to do is play that song and she is you know laurie strode so uh it's absolutely brilliant it's definitely one of the most iconic theme songs of all time up there with jaws and uh star wars the exorcist you know it's it's right up there but as i said john only had three days to do it and he actually showed a cut of the movie without music to an executive producer at some big production house and when she saw it, she said what is this 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 isn't scary but then when he re-showed her the movie with the sound in it she thought it was absolutely terrifying so it just shows how effective good music can be in a film it can really really change the movie from a decent movie into a great movie it's it's that powerful a component so now they had the music in the movie was complete and Aaron Yablans organized a viewing for all the major studios. Not one studio person turned up to view the movie. The idea behind it was, you know, we made this independently for $300,000. Then we show it to uh, industry professionals, big production house teams, and they'll come in and buy the rights to, to it. But, but that wasn't the case. No one came to view it. So... Erwin said, okay, I'm going to do this myself then. Erwin said, okay, I'm going to do this myself then. So he went back to his old distribution days and he needed to get the movie shown. So he, he chose to show it in smaller towns, smaller cities, kind of picking one cinema at a time. He, the idea behind that was if the movie does bad and gets bad reviews in this small area, you can bury the news and then just move on. To the next town until it gets good reviews and he sent it to a small town i can't remember which one and he got a call about the gates the gate receipts as as they would do you know it was like 200 dollars or something like that and he said ah, you know it's not bad it's not great but okay and then the next day it was double that and then the next day it was double that again so what was actually happening is halloween was getting word of mouth lots of people were going seeing the movie coming home telling their friends about it and going and seeing it 
and and that was that was how it worked and it really made Erwin appreciate the power of word of mouth because they had no advertising or marketing capabilities compared to the movies that were out at that time so this was you know huge halloween didn't become an instant overnight success it was a long long affair of it playing in smaller places then slightly bigger places and moving and moving and moving and eventually so many people were talking about it that it became this massive hit and it made 70 million dollars from its initial release and that was incredible for three hundred thousand dollars to go from three hundred thousand dollars to making 70 million john carpenter had his name on it that he would get a you know x amount of money that the movie made so he was he seen the biggest paycheck of his life and the actors and all that they were on to get x amount to pay afterwards so everyone got paid and everyone was really happy and then the movie just went into horror film folklore like it became this iconic treasured piece of of cinema that so many people are just obsessed with you see kids and everything dressed up as michael myers and all that and you see how powerful that the movie is that it had 13 reincarnations it had sequels i had reimaginings with the rob zombie ones and then i had this new trilogy the David Gordon Green trilogy, which uh, also starred Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. And this movie and this franchise just keeps going and growing and getting stronger. And it's absolutely incredible to see how far it's come after being made for $300,000. And it, it gave everyone their careers. It gave the camera people, Dean Cundy. It gave... Tommy Lee Wallace, it gave Nick Castle an ability to go out and make his own movies. Jamie Lee Curtis started her career. Uh, John Carpenter went on to to make some absolutely brilliant movies and some reckon that The Thing is greater possibly than Halloween. But The Thing is definitely up there as one of the greatest horror movies of, of all time. And there's actually a really funny part that the kids... In, in Halloween are actually watching the thing the original the thing and that's a kind of nice little coincidence there but this movie just went on it has such strong following and it's absolutely incredible what you can do if you have a team of inspired hard-working creative people what you can achieve for just three hundred thousand dollars and this movie to this day still so effective still brilliant and I watch it pretty much every every year that was Halloween, an absolutely incredible movie done by an incredible bunch of people. Who knows what the future will hold for Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. As I said, Halloween Ends just was released and there won't be any spoilers here, but that was just released. I've seen it. We thought we saw the end of Halloween before. Will we see the end of it now? As long as it makes money, I don't think so, but... Let's see what comes next for Michael Myers, Laurie Stroud and the Halloween franchise. I would like to thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed doing it. And if you are interested in following up on more episodes, please follow the Instagram page at Real Deal Film Talk. Also, 
do not be afraid to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or any platform that you use. And if you can and you want, give the show a rating, give the show a review, share any content that I will post and promote it if you want, if you like what you see and like what you hear. I will be returning soon with another episode. So if you want some sneak previews of what I will be doing, please follow the Instagram page at Real Deal Film Talk. Thanks so much again for listening. I'm Paul Whelan and I'll see you soon.